Please open your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. I was tempted to do this last week, but I'll do it this week. Not counting this series, how many of you have ever heard a sermon from the Song of Solomon? Okay, so there's a few. Not too many, though. Which is, you know, I think sad for the church. Uh, You know, Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, preached 50 sermons from this book. Bernard of Clairvaux preached 100. And many in the church today... If they read the Song of Solomon at all, it's with very little knowledge, and they have no idea what to do with it. Like, well, it's scripture. It must be good for me, but I don't know what to do with it. And so I'm hopeful that this series through the book will be uh, illuminating for all of us. It certainly has been for me to study it, to see how it connects to Christ, how we can read the book and and read it not in the same way that a Jew would read it, because a Jew would read it. And he would come away with something close to what I think Christ would have us see, but not all of it. And what I think the book is driving us towards is a Savior that's greater than Solomon. He's writing about something that not even he measures up to, as we'll see. But as we we saw last week, this this book is a book of poetry. It's, It's lyrical poetry. It's song. It's meant to be sung, actually. It was written by the King Solomon. It's an artistic expression of Love, love between a man and a woman, between a a shepherd king and his betrothed woman. She's betrothed, at least at this point. The love is described in various stages, from their initial longing all the way through the marriage and consummation. And thus far in the poem, the the king and queen are are engaged, or queen-to-be, I suppose. They're not married yet. They, They long to be. They're looking forward to it, but the day hasn't Arrive. They are eagerly anticipating that coming day. And that way, it's, it's much like the church today. Paul describes the church as the bride of Christ in Ephesians 5. We belong to the king. We've been pledged to him as his. But we eagerly await the final union, the final consummation, when he returns and we live perfectly with him. Today, we'll note in our text and all the way through chapter 2 that the author here, that Solomon is using all five of our senses, taste and touch and sight and so on, and he's using them to teach us about love. The the title of this sermon is Love and the Senses, and I'll say this is part one. I didn't get as far as I was hoping this week, but in this sermon and in the following one, we'll examine each of these five senses and how they're used in this section of Scripture. Previous generations would have described this kind of poetic language as sensual, meaning relating to the senses. This poetry, it's intentionally evocative. It's meant to move us. It's meant to stir us, to use the imagination and and the affections to to affect us at a level deeper than mere head knowledge and cognition. As we'll see, it kind of pulls us in as we read along. It's it's meant to stir within us something that bare truth can sometimes struggle to do. And so this scene that we'll read about in a moment, is it involves a back and forth. It's a dialogue between the betrothed bride and her beloved king. Let's, let's look at chapter 1 of Song of Solomon. I'll begin reading at verse 12. And I'll stop at chapter 2, verse 7. 
While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its presence. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am the rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me into his banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you stir not up love or awaken love until it pleases. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would see our great bridegroom in this text, that we would know of his love, and that we would love him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin today by noting the first sense in our text. We might say this point could be the smell of love. The smell of love. The woman begins in verse 12 by imagining herself in the presence of her beloved. She describes him as if he is right there on the couch with her. She says, while my, my king was on his couch, he's, he's reclining there on a big sofa-like piece of furniture that would be at the table at a banquet. They didn't have chairs like we sit in a chair at a dining room table. They reclined. But the mood here is, is celebratory because of the furniture being used, but unlike a feast, there is no crowd in her imagination. She's alone with him. She's close to her beloved, so close that the smell of love is permeating the space. She says in the next section, my, my nard gave forth its presence, or your translation might say spike nard. That's a precious perfume. It was exotic. It was expensive. Normally, only the wealthy would have something like that, and even then, it wasn't used all the time. It was a special occasion that you brought out the aromatic ointment. And so we have the smell of her fragrant perfume permeating the air, building anticipation. It's a delightful prelude to their embrace. But notice also that the pleasing smell isn't only from her. The woman describes her beloved in terms of sweet-smelling things as well. Verse 13, my beloved, that's the king, is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breast. He is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. And so the scene is building. They are close another to smell one another, increasing the intensity of the poetry. She describes him like a packet of fine-smelling spice that hangs around her neck. It's as if the smell of him always resides next to her, right next to her heart. And the aromatic language of this scene is reminiscent of other portions of scripture that describe pleasing aromas. It makes me think of 
the story of Noah right after the flood in Genesis 8. Do you remember what the text says there? Noah got out of the boat. He made an altar. He took some of the clean animals and offered them as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the text says that the offering was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The sacrifice pleased the Lord. The same language is used in Exodus 29, later in Leviticus, to describe the Lord's response to the giving of a fitting or right offering. God's people obey the Lord, they offer sacrifices for their sin, and the Lord is pleased to smell the result. Now, it's not as though the Lord has nostrils like we do. He has some sort of olfactory sense that is very strong, strong enough to pick it up in heaven, what we're doing down here. That's not what's going on. But the the biblical text makes clear that God is pleased, uses human language of smell to describe that the Lord is satisfied by the sacrifice. His holy and righteous anger towards sin is satisfied. It's appeased. His judgment stops. He's at peace with his people. He speaks a word of blessing to them. And all of this smelly language in the Old Testament is in the background when we get to the New Testament. And we see Paul in Ephesians 5 says that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Lord. Christ's work has a smell tied to it. It means we could say that the atoning work of Christ had the effect of pleasing the nostrils of God. The Lord had holy anger against his people. They were a stench to him in their sin. But now Christ's fragrance has satisfied that anger and pleased the Lord. That means that those that trust in Christ are no longer offensive to the Lord. Before we trust in Christ, we have our sin. We are We're repulsive, unpleasant to the nostrils of the Lord, we might say. Sin makes us unworthy. It makes us unclean. We can't be near to our beloved. We're unwashed. We're dirty. But because of our beloved's work on our behalf, we're not repulsive anymore. In fact, we're the opposite. We're made lovely. We are perfumed. We're like the woman in this text with the the scent of our precious ointment filling the whole house of God filling the nostrils of our beloved king. And so we could could press the imagery a little further, too. If if we were to get a, a little full of ourselves, think a little too highly of our work, get a bit arrogant and think that we're pretty lovely on our own, that we're pretty holy, we're doing all right, we're we're not a bad guy, we're we're doing everything that we should, then answer this question. Where do you think the woman in this text got the nard from? Where did this expensive ointment come from? I think the king gave it to her. Nothing in this book tells us that this woman comes from wealth, and I think there's even indications that she couldn't have gotten it on her own. I think the text tells us that she's anointed with sweet-smelling perfumes because her wealthy king has given her the gift of a sweet-smelling ointment. And the same is true for each of us. Whatever is pure and lovely within us, whatever is delightful and refreshing, whatever is pleasant to the nostrils is simply the result of people smelling the gift that the king has given to us. 
The smell, what they smell, they smell the Holy Spirit is what they're smelling, the fruit that he bears in our lives. And all of it is grace. There's no reason to boast. Any progress that we make in the Christian life, any growth we have in holiness, any movement towards our great king, indeed any loveliness that we have, is because the king has given it to us. And so we ought to remain humble and grateful And let us seek to take the gift of that fragrant sacrifice that that Christ has made on our behalf and imitate him. How how, How might we do that? Imitate Christ and be fragrant ourselves? Well, Paul says language of giving up our own bodies as a living sacrifice. Romans. Or maybe we be generous like the Philippians were. Paul says in Philippians 4 that that they gave, the Philippian church gave to Paul a generous gift, which was, quote, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. See, we are to give off an aroma, and the aroma is the smell of our king wherever we go. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 that we are all part of a, a victory march. He says, quote, a triumphal procession and through us the fragrance of the knowledge of him goes everywhere we are the aroma of christ to god among those who are being saved we are the aroma of christ and so if i may continue with the analogy i want to ask you this question how do you smell spiritually speaking how do you smell what fragrance do you exude to the people around you. When you look at yourself, when you look at your actions, would, would people find your presence and your behavior a pleasing aroma to their nostrils? Is the room made sweeter because you walk into it, or is the room made sweeter when you leave? Does God find you to be a pleasing fragrance? Does anyone? If you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want you to know that the theology of smell in Scripture doesn't stop here. In fact, Exodus 15 uses the same kind of poetic language about God and his nostrils to be the instrument of judgment. Moses' poetry, right after the, the exodus through the Red Sea, it says, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The, the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps hardened in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire to have its fill of them. But you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, them being Pharaoh's army, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. God simply blows his nose, and the mightiest army in the world sinks. Similar language is used in 2 Samuel 22 and in Psalm 18. In fact, hold your finger here in Song of Solomon and flip back to Psalm number 18. Psalm 18. David here in Psalm 18 is using, again, poetic imagery to describe God's judgment over his enemies. 
David picks up and he repeats imagery from the judgment at Exodus, but he doesn't only use that. He escalates it. He uses imagery and themes from Sodom, where he hailed down fire and brimstone from the sky. Even angelic pictures, cosmic language pointing us to a greater judgment. Psalm 18, verse 6. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire came from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode a holy cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. That's the power of our king. And answer me this question. If his mere breath, if a snort from his nostrils can create the magnitude of cosmic turmoil and judgment we see in that text, what will his arm do? What will his sword do? The sword is what awaits anyone who doesn't come and bow the knee to the king. And so if you have not trusted in Christ, then I urge you to do that today. Because without Christ, you are like smoke in the nostrils of our Lord. You're sinful, you're unclean, but by trusting in Christ, you can be washed, Scripture says, made pure through the washing of the water of His Word, and you can become a pleasing aroma because of Christ's fragrant offering in your place. And so trust in this Christ. Come to the Shepherd King. As Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son. That's all regarding the sense of smell today. I bet you didn't think you'd hear a theology of smell when you got here this morning. Let's move on to the next sense, and that is sight, the the sight of love. The sight of love. We move into another section of poetry where the sense of sight is front and center. The couple is taking turns describing one another. And as we go through, I want you to take special note of the back and forth. The tempo of the poetry increases. It's almost like we're meant to feel ourselves, the exhilaration that they're feeling. The poetry's pulling us in. We're becoming part of the action, as it were, rather than long-winded, laborious dialogues. There's a quick back and forth. There's even a reciprocity to the words that they say. Did you notice that? They're using each other's words. They're building off of one another. It's almost like if you've ever noticed a a newlywed couple. Like, I love you. No, I love you. No, I love you. And they go back and forth using each other's words. There's a little bit of that here. There's a playfulness to it. It's almost as if they're verbally dancing with one another through the poetry. 
They're, they're receiving the movements of one and they're using a complementary movement that's in line with what the other had just done. But it moves it in a more graceful way. It begins with the king speaking to his beloved. It says in verse 15, Behold, you're beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. He compliments the look of her eyes. Remember, Jesus teaches us that the eyes are the lamp of the soul. If your eyes are pure, the whole body is pure. And the king says that her eyes are as pure and innocent as doves. She doesn't have sharp, cutting, serpent-like eyes. Rather, he finds her appearance and her gaze to be lovely, graceful, innocent even, dove-like. And then the woman takes a turn. She uses the same language, echoing her man. She says, Behold, you're beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. She's repeating the same accolade about beauty that her king had just given to her. It's almost like they're following Paul's exhortation in Romans to outdo one another in showing honor. There's a back and forth reciprocity. They, they find each other lovely, and then they take turns telling each other how lovely they are. And I think at a very surface level reading, there's a clear example for us to follow. Am I diligent and consistent to praise my spouse? Not simply to notice their beauty. That's step one, I guess. And not simply to even admire the beauty. But do I consistently joyfully verbalize my affirmation. Some men especially fail here, and I'm in their number. We can think it's better to be, you know, kind of stoic at poetry stuff. That's for the women. We don't do that mushy stuff. Kind of a John Wayne machismo. I told her on our wedding day that I loved her, and I'll let her know when I changed my mind. Like, that, that's... <clears throat> All, all that man is doing is harming himself by harming his bride. If the two have become one and he's harming her, it's painful to the self. It's foolishness. And so we ought to take time to compliment. Use your eyes in a godly way to observe and to let them stir you in a joyful, godly way to delight in your spouse. There are many, there's millions of ways to use your eyes wrongly. But use your eyes in this way to stir godly affection within you to the one that God has knit you together with. Let's think about it another way too. If, as Jesus states, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, if your mouth is never speaking words of love to your spouse, what does that say about your heart? So examine your words, or lack of them, and you'll usually see what's going on in your heart. Now back to the text. They love each other, that's clear. They're praising each other's appearance. And then the, the bride changes the focus of what she's saying. Her eyes move from her beloved to the place of their repose. She says in the end of 16, Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. The rafters are pine. So again, she's using her eyes. She's looking around and she's noticing something. She's describing their home. 
And she says her couch is green. She's not referencing the color per se. It's not like in the 70s where you had avocado walls and sofas. This is a different kind of green couch. Think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The, the focus is on the fruitfulness of the place, not the color per se. The place of their intimacy, the place of their union is a place of fruitfulness. When she and the king are together, love is in abundance and the result of their union is fruit. And you all can read between the lines there. But we should also note that part of the reason there can be an expectation of fruitfulness is because of the work that the king has already done. She says of their home, the beams are cedar, the rafters are pine. There is substance to their home. It's sturdy. This is not a flimsy tent. This is not a shaky lean-to, kind of ramshackle and thrown together. She's saying that it's, it makes me feel safe and protected. There's a place of protection here. In fact, I think Solomon wants us to read this poetry and to think back to an earlier time. To think back in the Bible to when man and woman were alone together and their physical appearance was pure and dove-like. Solomon is hinting in this section using the language of green and trees and fruit to the purity of love found in Eden. The man and the woman were naked together and they were not ashamed. Visually, they were unafraid, unashamed of what they looked like. They had no thorns or thistles, no strife in their relationship. But as we all know, Adam and Eve wouldn't stay there. They broke God's command. They, they took what wasn't theirs. They plunged this whole world into chaos and to disorder. And rather than having a green couch, as it were, having joyful and fruitful childbirth, woman was cursed with terrible pain in childbirth. The couch wasn't as green as it once was. And rather than being safe and secure in a place of repose in the garden, they brought danger into this world, thorns and thistles, and they were exiled from the garden. That's what the fall has done to everyone, every one of us, this side of Eden. Marriages are hostile and fragile. Once fruitfulness is now dangerous, fertility and pregnancy are hard fought. They're painful, even dangerous to one's physical health. The marriage bed is no longer green, but instead becomes a battleground for domination rather than a place of Mutual honor and service. I wonder if any of this sounds familiar to you. I know many of us have experienced such dynamics, which are all the result of sin's terrible presence. But I want you to take note how this passage in Song of Solomon is describing almost like an undoing of the fall. Unlike the curse, there's beautiful harmony between the bride and her beloved here. Rather than desiring to dominate one another, they are delighted at the sight of their betrothed. It's like Adam and Eve 
are back in the garden and they're unashamed again. And unlike the curse which, which brought pain in childbirth, the couple here is experiencing fertility. There's a fruitfulness. Their, their bed, their couch is green. Fruitfulness rather than cursedness. I think Solomon is here describing what was lost in the losing of Eden, but not even something that he himself had experienced. Solomon had all sorts of problems. And the fact that he's describing something that he himself hasn't fully tasted leads me to conclude he's pointing us to something else, something beyond, something greater. In fact, I think he's looking forward to a better king, a king that he doesn't even measure up to. He's he's describing a king that will perfectly honor and praise his wife, a king that is completely delighted at the sight of his bride, a king that will provide a place of protection and safety, safer than beams of cedar and rafters of pine could ever afford. A king that will ensure a fruitfulness that no curse could ever touch. That king is Jesus Christ. He's the true son of David, the last and better Adam. You see, Christ praises the sight of his bride just like the king in this passage does. He delights in her appearance because she is robed in his very righteousness. Just like the smell of the nard, the the radiant appearance that the bride has, the bride of Christ, is itself a gift of love from the king. We're clothed in the righteousness of another. We're, We're made beautiful because of the beauty of our Savior. That's what the language of being washed by the water of the word. We're made pure and clean through his faithfulness as the great bridegroom. Unlike the first Adam that let his wife be defiled and cursed, the last Adam bore the curse for a defiled bride so that she might be pure and radiant forever. And this last Adam builds a protected and secure place for his bride. You see, the the first Adam should have killed the snake, protected his little garden temple right there for he and his bride, but he failed to do it. This, This last Adam built a new palace, a new and better Eden where no snakes are going to come in and deceive the bride unto her death. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. That means that his bride is safe. But unlike a house with cedar beams and pine rafters, which could wear out and rot and get termites and decay, Hebrews 12 tells us that we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Its foundation is secure. Not not we will receive... But we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The land of our king is impervious to decay. It's a place of safety and security. And unlike the first Adam, who stole the forbidden fruit, robbed his bride of unmarred fruitfulness, Christ ensures that his bride will rest on a green bed. When Christ and his bride are united, there is fruitful abundance. Their their union bears fruit. Sometimes their fruitfulness looks like the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit is poured out. Thousands are saved. We see numerical fruitfulness. And we pray for that. But other times, the fruitfulness is less noticeable. The spiritual 
futility of the union is seen in the bearing of another kind of fruit, like love and joy and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Wherever the king and his bride are truly together, there will be growth. It may be external, visible in terms of numbers. It may be quietly growing, almost imperceptibly like fruit on the vine, slowly growing more spiritual fruitfulness. And so the question for us remains, do I see the fruit of love in my life? Am I more patient than I was a year ago? Am I more kind? Am I living a life that people would look at and say they have control of themselves? Or am I impatient when others fail me and annoy me, easily irritated? Am I unkind to the people that don't really matter? Am I enslaved to the things around me rather than in control, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit? You see, it is that fruit, the fruit of Christ's spirit that makes the bride beautiful. Because Christ is the one that anoints his bride with his own spirit. As we grow more like Christ, we grow in loveliness because we're growing to be more like the lovely one. But to the extent that we fall short, we need to repent. We need to confess to the Lord where we have failed and ask him to wash us again, make our garments clean. Lord, make me lovely, make me beautiful in the sight of others and in your sight. We pray with the psalmist, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, in your vision. And so if you look at yourself and you don't see perfect loveliness, then I encourage you to think about the king as described here in Solomon's psalm. Think about the king of kings that is pictured here. How no other savior loves like he loves. No other earthly king or queen could ever satisfy you like he can. No other religion can make you feel as loved and embraced as Christ can. You see, every other religion tells you to clean yourself up. Make yourself lovely, then you're okay. Christianity begins with an indicative statement of what Christ has already done. Christ has died for the unlovely in order that they might be made pleasing and lovely in his sight. So trust in this Jesus and find yourself to be lovely. Believe in his promises and you'll find yourself to be growing and bearing more spiritual, lovely fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you'll see that you're becoming increasingly a a pleasing aroma to the King of Kings and to the believers around you. Now I'm going to have to stop here today. As I said, at the beginning of this week, I intended to make it through all five senses. And I've failed. That means there'll be a part two next week. But I'm going to close by praying and asking our shepherd king to make us beautiful, a fragrant aroma to him and to this world. Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ who was the fragrant, aromatic offering. And because of his faithfulness in our place, because of his obedience to every jot and tittle of the law, we can be forgiven and washed and made clean. Help us to remember the work of Christ in our place. Help us to cherish it. Help us to believe. 
and by believing have life.